0: Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he has done what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, our passage this morning hits at something very personal to each of us, something that each of us have, whether we recognize it or not. What is contained in our passage this morning speaks of our very attitude toward an expectation of God. And so with that in mind, it would be appropriate that we might ask God's blessing on our time before we dive in. Father, it is so good to be gathered together, your people here at Castleton Community Church, to praise and glorify your name. Father, it is so good to sit under the authority of your word. So now, Father, I ask that you might do only what you can do, that you might open our hearts, that you might open our minds that we might love and trust and follow you more deeply because of the next few minutes we have in your word together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. In my study this week, I came across a pastor who tells a story. He tells the story of a woman and her son stuck in the midst of a tornado outbreak. And as they were huddling together in their home, the winds started to get louder and stronger. They looked up and the roof started to come off of their house. And as that happened, the woman starts to see her son sucked upward by the wind. Soon she sees him disappear and she cries out to God, Please, Lord, bring my boy back. I will do anything for you. Suddenly, her son fell back at her feet, a little shaken, but not a bruise on his body. Perfectly fine. The mother excitedly grabbed her son, embraced him, and as she did that, she realized something was missing. So she looks up to heaven with a glare and says, he had a hat on, Lord. Now, I know two things, that that is certainly a humorous and fictional story. There's no way that that actually happened. But I also recognize that while it is humorous and fictional, it's probably not that far-fetched. And I know it's not that far-fetched because of our passage this morning, Luke 17, 7 through 19. Our passage this morning points out our often ungratefulness and pride before our God. So this morning, I hope that you become convinced through God's word that we are to be humble before God, knowing that he owes us nothing, and grateful before God, knowing that he has given us everything. We're going to see that in two sections this morning, verses 7 through 10. What does God owe us? And in verses 11 through 19, what do we owe God? Let's start with our first point this morning. If you remember uh, back to last week to Tommy's sermon, the audience who's hearing this message has not changed. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in verses 5 through 6, the verses immediately preceding our passage this morning, Jesus had some powerful words about the faith that the disciples have. And in light of that powerful faith, Jesus recognizes that his disciples and us this morning may be tempted toward spiritual pride. So Jesus uses a parable in verses 7 through 10 to address that temptation toward pride, and to answer the question, what does God owe us? To do this, Jesus uses a familiar, albeit exaggerated, scene from the ancient world. A master and his servant. Now, a quick note on this, so we aren't distracted with the text. In 2023, the imagery of a master and his servant carries real weight as we rightly recognize the evil of slavery in our country and around the world. While some similarities certainly exist, this is not the kind of master-servant relationship Jesus is referring to here in this par- parable. Okay, so with that familiar scene that Jesus is painting, Jesus is also using a very familiar teaching technique, the use of the rhetorical question. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? The obvious answer to this question would have been a quick and thunderous no, of course not. The servant's place would not have been at the table. Don't be silly, Jesus The table is reserved for the master. The servant has his proper place, and he has his proper role. What is that place? What is that role? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? The servant, he is to prepare supper. He is to dress properly. He is to serve the master while he eats and drinks. And then, after the master is served, will he only be given what was first given to the master. In this case, the supper that he has prepared. Jesus, to prove his point even further, asks another rhetorical question in verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he has done What was commanded? And again, the obvious answer from Jesus' disciples would have been a decisive no. Does the master thank the servant? Absolutely not. For the simple fact of he is the master and the servant is the servant. The servant is supposed to do what the master tells him to do. No extra thanks needed or expected. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I suspect that some of you are, man, that's that's kind of harsh, Jesus. At the very least, it's not very polite. At the worst, it sounds a bit cruel. The master can't spare a thank you every once in a while. Can't let the servant eat with him every now and again. But to get at the heart of what uh, what Jesus is teaching us, In this parable this morning, we must realize and recognize that Jesus is not teaching us anything about how an earthly master and servants are to relate and work together, although there's plenty of that in scripture. Rather, Jesus is teaching us about God and those who serve him. If you've not yet realized in this parable, God is the master and we are the servants Now, the teaching of the parable comes into greater focus, doesn't it? Especially if we are to remember the original audience that was hearing these words, Jesus' disciples. With that faith mentioned in verses 5 through 6, the disciples were going to go into a season of ministry that would see incredible things done in the name of Jesus. Peter would preach and 3,000 would be saved. Peter and John healed a lame man. Philip cast out demons and healed the lame. Peter raised Tabitha to life. There are many more examples of this season of ministry that disciples would enter. And Jesus knew that his disciples would need a heart check. Jesus knew that his disciples would need a pride check that in the midst of all of these acts done in the name and power of Jesus, that his disciples would need to be reminded that God is the master and they are but servants. And Jesus knows that you and I need to hear that exact same thing. What does God owe us as servants? Absolutely nothing. See, our obligation to our master is our obedience. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Now remember, Jesus here is only talking to people that already follow him. This statement does not have any saving value. That saving value comes by faith, by grace. But for those of us who have chosen to trust, love, and follow Jesus, we are servants of the Master, subjects of the King of Kings, children to our Heavenly Father. So, how do we know, how do we work out that our obligation to our God is our obedience? We know that obligation because Jesus Jesus here teaches us to have the right posture before God. That posture is one of humility. It must be we are the servants. After we have done all that we have been commanded, we are to say we are unworthy servants at that. We have only done our duty, brothers and sisters that statement and our humbleness before God gets at what the heart of it is to be a Jesus follower. To follow Jesus says that I bring nothing to the table except what has been given to me by my gracious Father. My worth is found in the image of God. Everything I have and own given to me by a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the very planet and universe we fly through, held up by the very power of his word. Because we have only done our duty, and because God owes us absolutely nothing, we humbly recognize that we could never put God in our debt. We should not expect or anticipate extra earthly favor or blessings simply because we have done that duty. Can God give us something better than the best gift he has already given us, his son, Jesus? Our obedience and our duty does not lead to an easier life, financial gain, or special recognition. It is simply our joy to obey the master. So that truth begs a question to be asked. Have we let an attitude of earning God's favor creep in? Are we expecting some earthly reward for our service to him? If I love, trust, and follow Jesus, surely we will have kids that obey us and do well in school if I give of my whole career to serve God, where I've worked for decades, of course God will reward my effort with a carefree retirement. I come to church faithfully every Sunday. Surely I will have perfect health. Now, while these lies are easy to believe, they are lies nonetheless. I think more than we would like to admit, in our service to God, we expect something material, immediate, earthly in return. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we are not promised perfect children or grandchildren. We are not promised an easy retirement or perfect health. But what we are promised is abundant life now, full life now, and eternal life into the future. See, we counter our propensity toward spiritual pride and wrong expectation by recognizing our rightful place before God. We are yet servants, and he is the master. Okay, so that was our first point. What does God owe us? The answer, absolutely nothing, but now in our second point, verses 11 through 19, we're going to answer the question, what do we owe God? What do we owe God? Many years uh, back at this point, one of my best friends was dating his now wife. And like any good boyfriend, a special occasion came around and he wanted to get her a really great gift. So he thought to himself, what's something that she really, really enjoys? A good question for a boyfriend to ask. And he landed on tea. She's a big tea drinker, and he knew this particular brand of tea that she really liked. So my buddy gets in his car and heads to the mall, back when people did that kind of thing, and confidently walks into a tea shop. And he looks around and finds the kind of tea that she likes, and he grabs that and goes up to the register to pay, and an employee asks him a very important question. How much tea would you like? Well, my friend has never bought tea in his entire life, but being from Washington State, he's very familiar with coffee. Can't be that much different than tea, right? So he says, I will take one pound. And the employee rings it up, And I can imagine my friend asking her this question, how much do I owe you? And the employee told him for this pound of tea, you owe me $300. (laughs) Much more than my friend was anticipating paying. Evidently, you don't order tea like coffee in pounds. That question that my friend had to wrestle with, what do I owe you, is the question that we'll wrestle with. What do I owe you, God? My friend bought the tea and they've been happily married for years now. The sticker shock was a bit much for him. (laughs) What do I owe you, God? Verse 11 on the way to Jerusalem he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Luke in verse 11 gives us a reminder of sorts a milepost. Jesus is on this winding journey to Jerusalem. Jesus has his sights set on the cross. In this Milepost of sorts. We also see the switch from the parable that Jesus was teaching now to an actual event that took place. So what's that setting for this event? Where do we find Jesus? And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Jesus has entered a village, and as he enters this village, he's met by these ten lepers Now, to rightly understand this portion of scripture, we've got to understand some context around lepers and leprosy in the time of Jesus. Leprosy was, and it still is, a devastating disease. It causes disfigurement of skins and bones, the twisting of limbs, the curling of fingers into what amounts as a claw. But the real damage that's caused by leprosy is when people lose all feeling in their limbs, including all feeling of pain. And when people are unaware of pain, they tend to injure themselves frequently and seriously. And be, so, because of the destructive nature of leprosy and the way it was used as an object lesson to show the debilitating nature of sin in a person's life, having leprosy would have been catastrophic for someone in the first century. Leviticus 13 and Numbers 5 both lay out very precise rules for how someone with leprosy was to be treated. They were not allowed to live in the community any longer. They were not allowed to get within six feet of another human, including anyone from their own family. They were to do that until they died or they got better. That was the only way they knew to stop the spread of the disease. But maybe even a bigger deal than those things, their status as a leper would have declared them unclean. Among the 61 ailments laid out in the law as making someone unclean, leprosy was second only to the touching of a dead body. To make someone unclean means to cut off their ability to worship God. So these 10 lepers that Jesus encounters are in desperate need of healing. If they were to be declared clean and be able to worship God and to restore their physical and uh, social condition, they are in desperate need need and the lepers understandably know this pretty clearly and lifted up their voices verse 13 and lifted up their voices saying jesus master have mercy on us these 10 lepers rightly see jesus as someone that can heal them the mercy that they're asking for certainly points to a physical healing We're not told where they got this information that Jesus could heal them, but they have certainly come to the right place. They have come to the right guy. And as we read this passage, we might expect Jesus to heal them immediately. He certainly has the power to do so, but he doesn't. First part of verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, why would Jesus send them to the priests instead of healing them immediately when they are asked? Well, as laid out in Old Testament law, the priests are the only ones that can declare lepers clean. They are the only ones that can restore them back to their community and to their friends and to their family. To go be declared clean by a priest means that they would have been restored socially and culturally. They would have life again. One commentator I read this week put it this way, that it would have been akin to being raised from the dead. This is a big deal. That's why Jesus sent them to the priest. And as they go on their way, Jesus does, in fact, heal them. They were restored to life on their way to the priest. Isn't that a sweet picture of what Jesus is all about? Jesus cares for the whole person. He cared not only that the lepers would be physically healed, but that socially and culturally they would be healed as well. The whole person healed. That's what Jesus is all about. More so, I think these lepers are a beautiful picture of what we can look forward to with anticipation to what Jesus will do in the future. When all of human time and all of human history is headed for a day when all things will be made right. When all things will be made whole. When sickness and disease and leprosy will be no more when poverty and natural disasters will cease, when everything fully and finally is made right, when Jesus comes again. Here with these lepers, we get a small picture of the future redemption of this world. We see those lepers being cleansed, healed, and restored to life. So we've established that the healing of these lepers is a huge deal, physically, socially, culturally. And now we find these 10 lepers are faced with a dilemma. What do you do now that you are healed? Do you go back to Jesus, the one who has given you literally new life? Or do you return healed and restored to your old life, to your friends, to your family, and to your community. These lepers have a choice to make. And famously, one of these lepers who was healed, restored to life, returned to Jesus. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. One out of ten decided that, you know what? I don't want to go back to life as normal. For this leper, he had encountered Jesus, and that changed everything. Notice for this one, he didn't even make it to the priests to be declared clean. He couldn't go back to life as normal if he wanted to. He saw that he was healed. He turned back, praising God. For this man, seeing and returning to Jesus amounts to his conversion. He didn't want his old life back. He had found new life with Jesus, whole again, physically and spiritually I can imagine that leper asking the question to himself as he turned back, that same question that my friend asked in that tea shop What do I owe you? What do I owe this man Jesus? What do I owe God? His answer undoubtedly would have been everything. But Jesus is not done with his lessons for these lepers or for us yet. After we get over the surprise of only one of ten returning to give any kind of thanks to Jesus, we get another big surprise. Maybe you picked up on it at the end of verse 16. Now, he was a Samaritan. Now, for us, far removed from the days of the first century, it's easy for us to gloss over that statement for us to look past it. And yet, for the original audience, this would have been a jaw-dropping sentence. Wait, what did he say? A Samaritan? The enemies of all enemies? Pagan half-breeds? That's the man Jesus healed? That's the man that chose to trust Jesus? Samaritans had been, since the time of the exile, the Jews' worst enemy. It's hard to even find a modern equivalent for you and I. It would have been absolutely shocking and astounding that that was the man who followed Jesus. But when we take a step back, doesn't it also make all the sense in the world Jesus' mission has always been to reconcile all peoples to the Father. Of course, that meant God's chosen people, the Jewish nation, but they were well on their way to rejecting him at this point. And so we get a picture of God's heart for all peoples, even the Samaritans. That heart and mission still certainly exist here 2,000 years later as we saw our team going to Thailand this week up here as a sweet reminder of that. Of course, in that way, it would be a Samaritan. After we and the original audience get over the astonishment that it was a Samaritan that was healed and returned to Jesus, Jesus even sounds a bit astonished here. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus here is precise with his words for a very clear purpose. The word here that Jesus used to describe this man, foreigner, is the exact same word that was inscribed on the temple walls declaring no outsider was allowed further into the temple under the punishment of death. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is radically subverting the temple rituals and declaring that not only is returning to Jesus and giving thanks for him enough to be saved, but it surpasses anything done in the temple. Again, this would have been an earth-shattering kind of reality for the original audience. Jesus is ushering in his new covenant, no longer bound up in the law and the temple, but bound up in Jesus himself. All of the lepers were healed and could have recognized this reality, but Jesus declares this in verse 19. And he said to him, Rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Only to this Samaritan, only to this foreigner has his faith made him well. It wasn't just a physical reality, this healing for this man. It wasn't just socially, but a spiritual one. His faith has made him well. Now, friends, you might be thinking to yourself this morning, I am happy that these lepers were healed. I'm thrilled that even one came back to trust and follow Jesus. Praise the Lord that his message is for all peoples. But Josh, I don't have an incurable skin disease. I'm not outcast from my family or friends or society Do these verses really have any application for my life? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. In our sin, we are separated, cut off, outcasts from God. You and I, we are spiritual lepers. But in His grace, And by his mercy, we can be restored to new and abundant life through the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Those who were once far off, far removed from God, have been brought near. Brothers and sisters, our faith has made us well. So I have a question that I want to leave you with this morning. What do we owe God? Will we have the same response as the nine who encountered Jesus and then went on with life as normal? Or will we have the response of the one who with gratefulness and thanksgiving returned to Jesus, praising him for his saving grace? That opportunity is there for all of us this morning. If you have yet to choose to trust, love, and follow Jesus, that opportunity is here this morning. Ask a Christian friend. Ask a pastor. Ask me, what does it mean to turn my back on sin and to find new, abundant, and eternal life in Jesus? That's the question we need to ask. And for those of us who have already chosen to trust, love, and follow Jesus, I hope you are more convinced this morning that we owe him everything. Certainly our praise and thanksgiving for great things he has done, we owe him our work, our money, our kids, our retirement, our very life. Thank you, Jesus for healing that restores us to abundant life now and eternal life in the future. Let's pray. Father, what a good message this is. Oh, we rejoice that your desire is to heal whole people. We rejoice in your work on the cross and your resurrection from the dead and the new life that gives us life to the full as servants to the master, subject to the king of kings. Father, I pray that the truth of your scripture might sink down deeply. Father, we are unworthy servants saved by a worthy God might we live out that reality in our homes and in our workplace and in our church and with our friends and with our family for your glory and for your honor and for your fame. Father, we thank you that we were once far off and have now been brought near. Jesus, we love you and thank you. In his name, amen.